0: Hello everyone, welcome to the Change on the Run podcast, where we discuss common change challenges and ways to address them when you're short of time. And I'm your host, Phil Buckley. Today's topic is creating a plan B. Most change and transition plans don't go as intended because there are too many variables to predict. Variances can cause delays, extra costs, and compromise credibility, especially if you haven't thought through responses to organizational shifts. So how do you create a plan B to avoid major disruptions from unanticipated events and to increase team agility? My guest today is David Smythe. David, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Phil. Pleasure to be here today.
0: Thanks for taking the time. And David has over 20 years of business and market development leadership experience. He is the executive director in North America at GPM Global, Green Project Management. David holds a BA history from Carleton University. David, what's been your
1: experience with creating
0: Plan Bs?
1: as you mentioned, Phil, I've got a multidisciplinary background. Over the past 20 years, it's the same we do corporate sales and marketing, professional services, practice, leadership, and large-scale project management and product development. So starting out in sales and marketing, really you learned pretty quickly that company's revenue requires an always growing and evolving funnel of opportunities. Nobody can ever count on closing every opportunity in their pipeline. So really, every opportunity is a plan B and contingency against every other opportunity. As I moved into management consulting, project management, and executive management, plan B's became essential due to, as you said, variables that oftentimes are out of your control, such as constrained revenue, shrinking budgets and constantly being challenged to do more with less. A great deal of what we do at GPM actually centers around building resiliency into your businesses and your business cases and properly assessing the assumptions and risks that could lead to a plan B. And on a personal level, I have a three-year-old son now, so dealing with plan B is required about 12 times a day. I
0: can imagine. What a great training ground for business transition plans and plan Bs.
1: It really is. It's been, a, it's been an eye-opener for sure.
0: And, and you, you raise so many great points. And And what fascinates me about your experience is you talked about sales and marketing, which is so strong in your career. And then also the project management overlay, you just had to say in like a sentence or two, why is it essential to have that mindset to always think
1: about having plan Bs? It's interesting. One of my favorite quotes, just in general, but it it especially took it to heart as I moved into the management consulting. Harold Wilson, who was a a two-time prime minister in the UK, he had a great line. I'm an optimist, but I'm an optimist who carries a raincoat. (laughs) The idea being... Every time you start a new project, every time you start a new sales pipeline, you're convinced this is going to go as well as ever. It's going to be the best we've ever had. We're not going to run into any cost overruns. Our scope's not going to change. Everything's going to be great. We're going to be able to manage anything. But we don't really live in that kind of a world. When you start taking into account all the assumptions and risks, what is really going to happen? We need 20 things done on this project, but realistically, that's a perfect world. What is the bare minimum that we need to move through this? A lot of times in product development, they talk about MVP, which is minimum viable product. That's what you need directly to get to market. So if you're creating a software that is directed for a new ERP software system, for example, it might need 15 core functionality. So that's your MVP. But when you're building it out, you might want to build 30 different functions. The plan B is, okay, if we'll have budget constraints, if the software that we're replacing isn't just doing the revenue that it used to, where we don't have the same budget to be able to produce the second, let's get to the minimum viable product.
0: Yeah, no, so true. And and it's interesting, you know, that whole planning phase where we're, we're planning perfection. And sometimes when I've come into projects and I've seen like, oh, wow, those assumptions are, are pretty... High and mighty. But then when I've been in that role of creating the project plan, I've been the one that has created it as high and mighty. Why do you think we do that to ourselves? We're selling the plan A as if it's going to happen that way. And the plan A might not be realistic right from the get go.
1: I think it's a common problem where when you're pitching your project or you're pitching your new product, whatever it may be. Every organization is working with limited resources, whether they're willing to admit it or not. Okay. There's not an an endless supply of funds. There's not an endless supply of opportunities. So really when you're putting together your business case and your project plan, you're in competition with others that are also producing business plans. So stakeholders are evaluating a number of different areas. So the natural tendency, unfortunately, is to oversell what you have. It becomes almost Darwinism in the sense that really you're overstating a lot of oftentimes benefits, you're underestimating risks as a method of getting your business case approved. Former colleague of mine, Steve Jenner, who does a lot of works in the benefit management space, whenever he used to talk, he used to joke, you know, he'd start his talks with, okay, business cases, hands up, everyone in the room who does business cases. All the hands would go up and he'd just say, you should all be in prison. You commit fraud on a daily basis. Hyperbole aside, it's because we're competing for restrained resources. And unfortunately, sometimes we embellish things without even really realize when we're doing so, we're just so optimistic that we overestimate our own ability to get things done.
0: I love your point about competing for resources. And, and I don't think everybody in our world thinks of it that way. It says, hey, I've been given a mandate for my project, but they don't see that they're in competition with multiple other ones. And there was one project I was on, it was a North American systems implementation, mm. and it was halfway through and, and I came in to support it. And I didn't see any contingency or plan Bs. And then when I when I said, Oh, Hey, you know, could you show me the contingency plans? And the PMO lead said, that's a great idea. I didn't even think about it. And then he jumped right in and created some of the best contingency plans I've seen in my career. Why do you think that step is missed? But some projects don't go through risk analyses. Why do you think that happens, especially on large projects?
1: Yeah. Projects often happen from a lot of different imperatives. I mean, there is a revenue or a market imperative where they have to go in a different direction. The product that they're doing is just not selling the way it would anymore, but they've seen a new opportunity. A lot of times they can be political, unfortunately. You see this a lot in a lot of the federal government work that I've done. It's been mandated by the minister. This is going to get done. And it just becomes that mindset. There's not really an option for a plan B because the minister sort of said this is going to happen. So that's often a case where there is just no plan B. Sometimes it can be organizational immaturity, but that hasn't necessarily been my experience. It just becomes somebody... A senior stakeholder has mandated that this project is going to take place, it's going to happen, these are going to be results. And a lot of times you might be in a culture where you're afraid to stand up and say, this may not work. So I think a lot of it, in order to start building plan B's more effectively, you really need to look at the business case. You need to build those assumptions and risks into the business case, but you also need to create a culture where you're allowed to say, what happens if this does not work? Or if this risk and this risk, if risk A and B take place, it's going to affect everything we do. So how can we manage that from a top-down level to make sure those risks don't occur?
0: From your experience, what makes a good plan B or contingency? What are those elements that make up a strong one that can be activated if required
1: and mitigates any risk? I think the first thing you need to do is have a strong communication plan and also have the senior responsible owners, people who have ownership of the project, people who are approving it in the first place. I think you have to have a realistic conversation with them and they need to be realistic about what really needs to be accomplished. And secondly, I think a specific event that might trigger a plan B, for example, I'll go back to the example of creating version two of a software. So say you're a company that develops video games. You've got the hottest video game on the market and you wanna develop the next version of it. You go from the 2010 version to the 2021 or whatever it might be. You're counting on a lot of incoming revenue on the existing game to be able to develop the next version. Well, what if all of a sudden the revenue starts to plummet and you just don't have that revenue anymore? So those are questions that need to be asked. And I think, again, for a strong plan B, let all people who are in active roles within that project and senior roles have an understanding of what plan B is going to look like. How are your roles going to be affected? How are resources going to be affected? And how is it going to impact other projects within your overall portfolio? One other thing, often we think plan B or having to go to a plan B is somehow a failure on the part of the project team or the project planning or the business case. And that's not necessarily the case. I mean, because we said there's so many different variables that go into the success of a project. Moving to a plan B doesn't mean that you've failed on your plan A. It just means you're moving into a different direction that the project might be of moving to a plan B or moving to a new end result, might be more impactful for your business than plan A. Looking at your project, not just from a project perspective, but from an overall portfolio perspective, because your project is often going to be just one in a number of important strategic goals for your organization.
0: David, that's so interesting. And one part in particular, the knee-jerk reaction when a plan B is activated, which is really cultural. I'm wondering if you've had my experiences where something doesn't go as planned and then it's a fire drill and then everyone gets together and what are we going to do? And it gets into this almost militaristic initiative of how do we get back on track or back to the critical plan, which discourages the plan from being triggered and you could see a scenario of well maybe i don't trigger it because i know what that's going to do
1: it's actually interesting that you mentioned the militaristic point of view one of my favorite thoughts about plan b and planning is the military does an exceptional job at planning scenarios it's emotionally difficult but at the same time once you're in that change we can deal with the emotional aftermath later we just have to get this done right now
0: Say if you're going into a new project, the steering committee or the leadership team, some have experience on large change initiatives, others don't. How do you prepare them so that they don't take that knee-jerk, emotional, all-hands-on-deck, hyperventilating mode, which, which causes ripples of confusion and stress, can you prepare a leadership team so that you can train them to be able to take the facts the way they are versus being emotive around those facts?
1: I think all leaders are going to have different personalities. Part of your role as the change manager or the project manager or the person who you know sort of has to be the bearer of bad news is to really understand and get to know the stakeholders and get to know what is really driving their decisions, what their personality is going to be like, understand, understanding who's imperative to the project, who are the high influencers, who are the low influencers, really understanding each individual stakeholder's role, their personality, and also being able to build in early. And and that's one of the things at GPM that we do frequently. We, We place so much emphasis on the business case in early stage planning so that if you're building in proper risks and assumptions, doing that properly, and you're doing it thoroughly, and engaging with the stakeholders to really have them engaged and active in that process, then potential needs for plan B or things going wrong should have been detailed. Donald Rumsfeld as well, like knowing about unknown knowns. There are things that are going to go wrong, and then there are things that might go wrong. And it's really preparing them for that and saying, okay, as we said, the video game example, if we don't have enough revenue to get all the extra functionality we need, what is really our minimum viable product? What gets this product out the door?
0: Could you do that for change plans as well? Could you have that minimal viable plan where there is that expectation, as you mentioned, of this is our first guess. We're going to test and learn. We highly anticipate that it will change and and create that as almost a a project culture. Or or is that a bridge too far?
1: It all comes down to culture. Peter Trucker said culture eats strategy for breakfast. So if you're creating a culture of change throughout the organization, as opposed to just on your specific project, then you're creating resiliency and you're creating awareness throughout your organization. But I think if you really put an emphasis on organizational training, organizational development, understanding, for example, staff turnover is such a large risk whenever you're working on large long-term projects. We'll bring HR in so you you can help better understand why employees are leaving and and a better way to maintain your employees, especially during COVID. could be work from home as we transition to what's the future going to look like over the next little while. And that's just one example where you're bringing an organization such as HR that you don't always think of as being part of a project. But if you think of more than just your own project silo or your own change silo and bringing in the entire organization, then you are capable of creating that organizational awareness and change. Absolutely.
0: And you mentioned the importance of training and how that works. One of the best flights I ever had with someone sitting beside me was the head of security for London, England, the city proper, as well as the 2012 Summer Olympics. And, and so he was always oh, wow. conti- oh, amazing, a, a, an incredibly generous gentleman. Mm-hmm. And what he said is he had high level of confidence. And you can imagine with everything that could go wrong with the Olympics, he was extremely confident in their ability to react to anything. And what he had tra- it to solely was the training of his teams on all of these scenarios. He said, I know, Phil, that if anything goes wrong, we've considered it and we've trained it time and time and time again. How do you take the time to train people about a contingency plan or a plan B so that people do know what to do if it
1: happens? I think there are a number of simulations that you can do through whether it's examples or potential case studies, things like that. The biggest thing that organizations can do that tends to get lost, and what I mean by lost is we're talking about lessons learned reports. Every project should have a strong lessons learned report when you're going through project closeout. The problem is that those lessons learned are almost never learned, or they're just put into a file somewhere and never looked at again. But if you create a strong repository of lessons learned, then when you're bringing new people on board into the organization, or you're looking at new projects, you can go through those lessons learned and say, okay, this happened on this type of project. Will that happen again on a similar project? And also there's your own internal lessons learned, but when you're bringing in new project members into your organization or new staff into your organization. Add to the lessons learned for things that have happened on projects that happened for the companies they work with previously, if they were similar type projects or in a similar industry. I mean, we tend to think all our projects are special. And I kind of joke that you're not special just because your mother told you you're special. I mean, projects, most of the time, they have the same DNA, whether it's aerospace or whether it's software, about 80% of it is very similar. It's the 20% subject matter that makes the change different. But at the end of the day, projects tend to be projects. Each project has its own unique characteristics. But again, if you do your planning, if you take your risks, if you incorporate the entire project team, likely there's enough experience on that team to deal with unique problems that will happen on your specific project.
0: We talked a lot about what makes a good plan B or a contingency plan. Have you ever seen a contingency plan fail? And if so, could you share what you think happened?
1: Sure. Previous to my current role, I was working with APMG, which was uh, a large accreditation training and consulting provider. And i worked with a number of partners over the years to try to get them to move online with their corporate training delivery to their clients. And a number of them just would not move to online delivery. And my argument was, if you're going to be in business in 15, 20 years, as millennials and Gen Z move into the prime of their adult learning and start paying for a lot of these courses themselves, a hybrid model Would really be great for them. So, I'm not saying just move entirely online, but you need to be able to have that capability. Some of your courses will be delivered remotely, some will be virtual asynchronously, whatever it may be. And many resisted. Their thought was, I'll deliver online over my dead body. And my argument was going to be, well, it might not be over your dead body, it might be over your dead business. And then last year happens, COVID comes, and nobody can train in a classroom anymore. So, luckily, many had already started to move into a virtual setting or others who had been very hesitant were able to transition and pivot very quickly. They were able to find a a strong software platforms, but they got themselves online very quickly. Some others, unfortunately, were not able to make the transition and they're not around now. And these are some large, very strong traditional training companies that just couldn't adapt. So if you look at something like the pandemic, obviously it's been horrible and and catastrophic for us worldwide, but things like that can force change. It's accelerated things like digital transformation. It's a plan B, and this is one of those things that nobody could have seen coming on a plan B, but what do you take from it? You've managed to survive as a business and going back to not every plan B is a failure. Well, plan A just wasn't available to you anymore. That was for no fault of your own. You can't do classroom training anymore. So that move to a plan B was nothing but a positive because it's opened you up to new geographies. For example, if you were concentrated in Toronto, but now you're virtual, you can start pulling people from Denver, from different time zones. You might even catch people from the UK who want to train late in the day after their workday is over. Well, that's a plan B that worked out very well for you. It's been able to keep you in business, open up new revenue streams for you.
0: What a great example about the pandemic and training, because I found some companies that had no plan B, and then they were forced to make some sort of an attempt. They took their classroom learning and just, through it online, which we know was a disaster. So no plan B led to an attempt that that failed miserably. No plan B doesn't mean that you can't react, but your reaction is probably inferior to the one that if you had planned it out.
1: Right. Or there are there a lot of growing pains along the way.
0: Yeah. Right. What do you think a leader's role is in creating and, and also activating plan B's? What should they be accountable for to make them
1: successful? Recognizing when you need to move to the plan B, having that well written down, having it communicated to your team, and also being realistic. You shouldn't be sugarcoating things, in my opinion. You can be difficult, but you can be fair at the same time. Okay, this isn't working. This project is not going according to plan, or it's not part of our strategic imperative anymore. This is where we're going to move in this direction to get us back on track to better suit organizational goals. So I think leading, communicating, and empowering people to make recommendations is really what the leader's role would be through that. But I I think it all comes down to, as anything else, just comes down to clear communication. And you talked about
0: triggering it. And that's one of the elements I find is challenging if it's not clear with clear communication and leadership support. Any tips on how to have a strong trigger point? I've seen some where it went past the trigger point and it wasn't hit or it was triggered too early. How do you get that correct?
1: I think oftentimes we can bring emotion into it where... The trigger points are probably well-established, but you're just not necessarily abiding by them. Again, it comes back to sort of when we're talking about the business case and why do we over-exaggerate our own abilities? Because you really want to be able to do this well and you always think that you're going to overcome the adversity that you're going through, taking a bit of the emotion out of it is a big part of it. And just understanding, okay, this isn't working. This project needs to be routed in a different direction, or the project just needs to be cut and understanding that isn't necessarily the end of the world. You're not going to lose your job. You're just going to move on to the next project.
0: You said it a couple of times. I think it's so important. Canceling a project can be good for the organization and seen as an accolade for a project team if you have the right culture. But if you don't, there's an incentive to keep going when it no longer makes sense or the requirements have changed. I would agree
1: with that. And again, it comes down to seeing your project, not just from your project view, but from an overall strategic portfolio View. We talk a lot about, and you hear it all the time, project management is becoming more and more essential over the next 10, 20 years. But I find that project managers often aren't because they are taking sort of a myopic view. One of the ways to really become a trusted advisor, one of the ways to really engage with your stakeholders is to emphasize lessons learned, is to emphasize risks, is to emphasize assumptions, and really emphasizing a plan B, an understanding where your project sits within the overall portfolio. Management function of the organization you're with, and being able to communicate that to your teams, right? Because again, it can be very discouraging for your team if your budget keeps getting cut. But explain to them, okay, we had to lose these five software developers over here for another project that was short-staffed over here that is showing more commercial revenue potential.
0: I have seen that experience, and without the proper communication, it can seem like it's a failure. We talk a lot about communication and its importance. When do you communicate all of these things, such as the importance? Of- Plan B's, understanding risks, realizing that you're within a portfolio of projects to drive the organizational objectives. When do you have to get that
1: done? I think a lot of it it can be done at the kickoff stage. Prince 2 was a project management methodology that we used often, and it was heavily front loaded towards a business case and the business plan cycle. And the idea was always fail early, fail cheaply. Sort of speaks for itself. But when you're working with your teams, I think setting realistic scenarios early for a what's going to go right in the project But be here are the possibilities of what may go wrong here are the other competing priorities that we're working with within the organization and some yeah some of you may have to move on to other projects initially creating that environment or creating that picture and then periodically as you go as you move into each new phase of the project and also if you can provide training along the way, have scheduled check-ins with project teams. It doesn't have to be every week. I'm not a big fan of meetings just for the sake of meetings. But if you can have ad hoc meetings every couple of weeks, even if it's only 10, 15 minutes with your project team, that kind of communication can be very valuable.
0: I'm thinking for the listeners that are starting a project right now, or they're about to, are there any watchouts, anything around contingency planning that's a watchout to say there's greater risk here than what we should have.
1: You don't want to be doomsday, but sort of plan for the worst. Like I said, 20 months ago, nobody saw a pandemic coming, but then it happened. You can use that as one of those emphasis. like the worst possible thing happened and we're still here. That kind of communication is important early on.
0: Great advice. Thank you. You do a lot of work with the GPM P5 Standards for Sustainability in Project Management
1: version 2.0.
0: How do these standards help identify areas where contingency plans are required?
1: First, I just want to explain quickly what P5 actually stands for. So the P5 is products, process, people, planet, and prosperity. So when we talk about sustainability, we're not just talking about environmental sustainability. We're talking about building resiliency into your business so that your business is going to be around 10, 15, 20, 50 years from now. If I look at what happened during COVID with our PPE supply, our P5 really covers a lot of that area. One of the things we talk about frequently and one of the elements is local procurement. We really got caught with our pants down, no pun intended, in Canada when we did not have the requisite PPE. We were dependent on China and they were going through such a difficult time with COVID that they were using a lot of it themselves and weren't able to do it. So one of the things we discuss is under P5, we should be able to have local procurement or a local supplier for PPE. And that touches on a number of elements that we will cover as well, in that it cuts carbon emissions through lesser and fewer transportation costs and transportation emissions, whereas you're bringing in a truckload of PPE from, say, London, Ontario to Toronto, rather than shipping it via ocean. There's a number of different elements. I would encourage anybody who's interested to download the P5 standard, again, because it's looking at not just the environment, but people, planet, profit as well.
0: Thanks, David. I did download the standard and it's a really well-written document. We'll put a connection to your site so that people download directly for podcasts. And in the spirit of change on the run, if you only had time to do one action to create a plan B, let's say you came in late or the agenda was going so quickly, what's the one thing that you would do to give you the 80% results in 20% of the time?
1: I come back to creating a very clear communication plan. That communication plan would set a specific trigger event. It would ensure all stakeholders know their roles. It would treat plan B with optimism rather than treating it as a potential failure, as a way to keep morale up. And always remember Wilson's quote, I'm an optimist, but an optimist who carries an umbrella.
0: I love the quote. And it really does present the mindset of making good plan Bs and making sure that they come to be. David, thanks so much for being on the Change on the Run podcast. Do you have a parting tip or, or maybe an insight or a point that you'd like to reinforce to leave our listeners with?
1: Life changes every day. Work changes every day. And yeah, it can be difficult. But as we've all shown, we're far more resilient than any of us ever realized. And we're all still standing. Our businesses are still running. We've pivoted. We've found new ways to do things. And it really isn't as scary as I might have thought it was two years ago. So true. Thank you so much. And how
0: can listeners get in contact with you?
1: Yeah, they can get in touch with me via email at david.smythe at greenprojectmanagement.org, got Smyth, S-M-Y-T-H, or they can reach me on my LinkedIn profile. And my cell phone number is 647-980-5234. This has been great, Phil. Really appreciate it. David, thanks so
0: much for being on the show. Thanks for taking the time. So many great tips to share. And thank you for listening. And if you're interested in further episodes as great as this one, I highly recommend that you hit subscribe. And every two weeks, you get a new episode coming into your inbox. And until the next time, I wish you all the best as you continue to lead change.